This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 92, March the 5th, 1984. Well, today we have uh, a treat for you. We have uh, John Lofton from Washington, D.C. with us. John Saunders and Otto Scott and myself will interview him. We have a very important subject to deal with. Uh, John Lofton feels that this it's high time that we had earthquake reform. <laughs> we have in the country today, in fact the world over, an unfair allocation of resources. Why is it that uh, Chile and Japan and California are getting uh, too great a share of earthquakes and Moscow and Washington, D.C. are deprived <laughs> What Washington and Moscow need are some earthquakes. And it's high time Congress acted on this serious inequality. Where is Ralph Nader when we really need him? By the way, I knew the time changed when I came out here, but I do not think it is March 5th, 1984, as you said. Oh, 1985. Where was when I left Washington? (laughs) We... <laughs> have been a little high on humor all th- this morning and yesterday, so I'm a little addled, <laughs> a little giddy. <laughs> What's the climate here Back, in Washington uh, now, John? Well, it's about like it is out here, kind of cool and damp and dangerous. <laughs> I, I was under the impression there were a lot of dreamers in Washington. I'm surprised to hear there was a shortage. <laughs> oh, well, there's no no shortage of those kinds of tremors, I assure you. <laughs> no, I mean what 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 uh, uh, you know we've heard we've heard an awful lot of uh, of uh, discussion about the importance of the appointment of Pat Buchanan, and I you know I. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, for conservatives, and I don't know, I don't really know if it, you know, if it's going to have that much of an impact. But I'd, I'd like to get your evaluation of it. You're right there. Sure, Pat, of course, uh, was the co-host of the Crossfire Show on Cable News Network. He's a former syndicated columnist, and also worked as a speechwriter for uh, Richard Nixon. Probably the speeches people would remember most are the ones that Vice President Agnew uh, delivered, attacking. Uh, the national news media. Pat's a veteran at this kind of thing, and while I don't really have personal knowledge of the details that caused him to take the job, I would uh, think that Pat got some guarantees about access to the president, that he will have access to the president, and that he will be a uh, policy maker. I can't imagine that he would have taken this job under uh, any other circumstances, but uh, it's a cliche. Time will tell whether or not uh, Pat has any impact on policy, and I'm convinced that if he uh, if he doesn't, he will quickly detect this, being the veteran he is, and that he will leave. But it's a, I think it's a very good thing uh, on its merits, and I think it's also very good that Don Regan uh, picked him. Well, I think that it's good too, because Regan comes from Wall Street, and he's a businessman. And as we've said before, off mic, so to speak, one of the distinguishing characteristics of businessmen is that they don't really respect ideas. 
One of the criticisms of Jim Baker as chief of staff was that he interfered with ideas mm-hmm. instead of uh, masterminding the traffic at the White House. He kept interfering with uh, everyone's ideas. Now, Reagan, I believe, wants to streamline the process, but doesn't, isn't that interested in the ideas, whereas Pat Buchanan is interested in the ideas only. And therefore, I think this may uh, stiffen the Reagan position. We should point out, I guess, that Don Regan, who... Uh uh, hired Pat Buchanan is the new chief of staff at the White House, replacing Jim Baker, and he was formerly the secretary of the uh, of the Treasury. There was one report which I read in the Washington Post just before I came out here that said that a speech draft that Pat had written for the president to be delivered at this annual conservative political action uh, convention had been uh, watered down, and that he had written a pretty tough draft. And that it had been uh, had its sales trimmed considerably, and uh, that was written by Lou Cannon of the Washington Post, who, whatever else you think of him, he has excellent sources in the White House. So that's the first report I've seen as to how Pat's doing, and if it's accurate, and I stress, if it's accurate, uh, it's not a good sign. Otto, you said something that is very important. Namely, the fact that the business community, and we can add the political community, has no use for ideas. I think the reason for that is that we have been excluding religion from public life, deliberately. If you begin with a biblical perspective, then you're going to say that what a man thinks is important Uh, we saw President Kennedy begin this destruction of uh, ideas in the public place when he said all our problems are technological ones, following Daniel Bell, I believe, and that uh, we no longer had a question of issues, just developing uh, the technology and furthering, although he didn't say so, the bureaucratic implementation of certain things. So ideas were abandoned about 1960. I think I would go prior to Kennedy. I, I agree with what you say about Kennedy. But I think that was the distinguishing mark of the Eisenhower administration. Uh, General Eisenhower was a specialist, And my experience with technical specialists is that they don't respect ideas. Now, business doesn't respect ideas because its business is devoted to tangible products. Uh, They sell tractors, they sell automobiles, they sell uh, buildings, they sell land, they sell things that can be measured and felt and carried around. Anything else is uh, pizzazz, Mm-hmm. It's advertising, and it's considered not only on a lesser level, but almost on a feminine level, as not worthy of the attention of serious grown men. And the whole United States was involved in that sort of an attitude in World War II, where most Americans didn't know why we were in the war, because there was nothing tangibly 
promised as a result of the war. It was a war against. It was a war against Hitler. It was a war against Japan. But it wasn't a war for. And because of that, we allied ourselves with the Soviet devil. Now, this is a besetting problem, and you put your finger on it, I think, when you said it's because we cut loose from our ecclesiastical roots, cut loose from God. Then everything becomes tangible, and it becomes power, it becomes money, it becomes things. And this is one of the arguments, I believe, that uh, even the people who voted for Reagan, which is most of the people who voted, uh, have against the present White House, is that it seems to be lost in the area between ideas and action. And somehow or another, the connection isn't made clear to the people. Now, Pat Buchanan is very, very good. He gets to the heart of the subject generally. And if he's, if he's going to be watered down, I should say it'd be equivalent to losing a war. Well, you know, I sit here, uh, I sit here thinking, uh, as you say these things, of so many conversations I've had with uh, administration aides, uh, arguments I've had with them over the past four years plus. And in the mind of these uh, individuals, to have ideas is to be branded an ideologue or a purist, someone who, uh, without even any need to argue the point, is automatically labeled uh, uh, someone who deals in a fantasy realm. Uh, one, one aide once said to me, you know, your problem, Lofton, is you're out there uh, screaming and yelling and raging, and you're the ideological purist, whereas we're in here governing <laughs> and of course, yeah, I know this was a. Uh, I said, "Oh, really?" And and what do you think you're governing? You don't. This was at a time when there were massive leaks in the press by Reagan's own aides stabbing him in the back. I mean, they hadn't even pacified the White House grounds, and for this aide to be telling me he was governing. Uh, but but this is to put forth ideas or to defend principles, is to be labeled some sort of uh, uh, person who's in a fantasy world. Yeah, yeah but John, that's, that's <clears throat> typical of an awful lot of Christian thinking today, okay, in just a, a different form. Born again on the inside, but on the outside, I live in the practical world. Well, that's right. They're still conforming to other people's realities, because I've had numerous conversations with presidential aides at all levels, and uh, they are prisoners of their poll data. Many times they will agree with you that something is a good idea, but don't you understand, John? We can't do that. They won't let us do that. And the problem, there's many problems with that uh, kind of defeatist surrender thinking, but one of the, those problems is that it is a static analysis of the poll data. In other words, these numbers and percentages which show people against you, they can be changed by effective leadership. These are not numbers that are chiseled in stone. Ronald Reagan, whatever else he is, is perhaps the most effective speaking president in the history of the country. Oh, no, no. Not the history of the country. In his, Since Mr. Roosevelt. Okay, fine. Uh, uh, and uh, all too often, he has not used what power he had to change thinking. 
he has trimmed his own sails to fit the thinking, and it, it's been a big tragedy. Well, when uh, even retroactively, or especially retroactively, I'm not going to defend Mr. Roosevelt. However, I recall his administration, and I recall the, the fact that all of us knew who was in charge of the country. There was no doubt about it. And his management style was very strange. He didn't tell his staff what he wanted. He would make them aware that he was interested in a certain area. And then a competition would begin on solutions in that area. And he would brush aside the solution he didn't like and smile encouragingly at the solutions he did. And by trial and error, then, a certain group would begin to shine in the White House, and that particular policy would evolve. In the process, the persons who proposed it were also saddled, of course, with the uh, problem of selling it to the countryside. And Mr. Roosevelt would eventually get on the air and play the violin, and he would sell it. In that way, our State Department in World War II gradually learned through trial and error, that his purpose in World War II was to destroy the British Empire. Yeah. You know, I, I just going back to this one thing about ideas just for a second. You destroy the god of, of, of a system, or in this case, if, if, the Christ, if the god of Christianity is abolished from a system of thinking, then the first thing that follows naturally is the loss of meaning. And I think one of the things that businessmen, uh, they fear ideas because they don't understand them and where they can lead. And I think that what you're talking about that's going on many times with the White House or people in the White House is really a, a kind of a political or secular self-justification along the lines of we live under grace and not under law. And I, I, think, I think that it's just a, a political version of the same kind of thing. Christians oftentimes justify not following God's law by by making this artificial separation between the idealistic and the practical. See? And I think that's exactly what these people are doing in 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 White House and in politics so many times. That there is this ideologue ideologue out there who is, who might be our critic, but we live in the practical well, world. Well, the the fatal. Uh, I mean the the. Uh the uh, disastrous nature of that static kind of thinking is this. It says that it's okay to be principled and have ideas and to believe in things when you run for office, but they equate governing with the abandonment of every principle they ever held. And that they just take their principles and throw them out the first window when they get into public office, and now, then they become pragmatic and... and do what they say, what they call governing. Let me say it's, uh, we've talked about this lack of ideas. It's really more than that, and that isn't the proper term. It isn't a lack of ideas and principles. It's a lack of faith. You can have a lot of ideas floating around, but what is important is a faith, because it's a faith that governs you. We're told in the Old Testament where there is no vision, the people perish. And uh, the word vision there can, I believe, be translated as revelation. 
where there is no revelation, the people perish. And today, because they have no faith in the revelation, which is the Word of God, the Bible, uh, they are without anything but uh, pragmatism. Uh, they well, you know, are uh, moving in a world of, uh, well, what's the technological answer? Let's uh, improvise here. Well, see, I don't, well, even want, I don't even want to call it pragmatism because uh, the general idea of pragmatism is doing what works, and what they do doesn't even work. That's one of Lofton's laws. Pragmatism doesn't work. I keep thinking of this verse in the book of Judges about, I think it was Israel, wasn't it, who had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and if that's not the present-day yes. government, I, I don't know what is. Well, the, right. the reason I brought up the business of Roosevelt was that a lot of the observers apparently missed the key to his administrative method. They think now that comparisons have been made between Roosevelt and Reagan, and they, they, think, that, <laughs> they think that Reagan should come out and tell everybody what he believes, what the country should do, so on and so forth. Mr. Roosevelt never really did that. He did, he moved indirectly, he moved obliquely, but he did have a program in his mind. He was anti-British Empire, he was anti-colonial, the anti-the-colonial world, and he moved very adroitly to destroy that world which he was against. And he was he was against it because he was raised and educated to be against it. Mr. Reagan has grown up in a scrambled period. His his education was less direct. He grew up, if we uh, listen to Rush, and I think I agree, in a less Christian period, far less clear. And therefore, he does what I was able to do when I was a young man and first wrote, wrote uh, editorials. Uh, I've destroyed them a long time ago. I threw out all the scrapbooks because uh, they embarrassed me later on when I read them. They were the perfectly scrambled egg editorials that you still read in the New York Times. And that's because at the time I was totally confused and I was doing my best. And what you're seeing is not pragmatism, you're seeing confusion. Well, now, you know, it's like we've choreographed this, but I can assure you this one has not been choreographed this session. I have, uh, I wrote a piece recently about Ronald Reagan's recent interview in the New York Times. It was maybe three weeks ago. The first question Ronald Reagan was asked was whether or not he is not going into arms control talks with the Soviets in a position of military inferiority. Well, yes. Ronald Reagan said, yes, I am. And then he helpfully enumerated the areas in which we're inferior. Now, this is worth talking about because this represents a major departure from what Ronald Reagan had said not only all of his life when he wasn't president, but for a majority of his presidency. He talked about the uh, the dangerous nature of negotiating with an enemy from a position of inferiority. We should never do it. He trashed Carter for doing it. Uh, it was just a basic rule to Ronald Reagan of history. And now, with without 
even beating around the bush or playing any games on the numbers of weapon systems or megatonnage, the first question he was asked, he, he readily conceded, yes, we're going into uh, these negotiations from a position of military weakness. So you talk about confusion? Yeah, with a capital C in, in Washington. You better believe it. Well, I think... I think I don't and that rhymes that. with P, and that stands for president. And I... <laughs> Earthquake reform. Dog Doggerel yes. <laughs> is not allowed. I'm sorry. Burn this no. tape. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, I think uh, I think that he's that uh, that more than anything else, the driving motivation behind uh, him going to the the table with the Russians is because of pressure from the media. I, I think he's going there without the proper agenda. I think he's going there in a position of inferiority and a lot of other negatives. But I think he's been forced into the position by the media. Oh, there's no, there's no, there's no doubt you know. about it. The media's been part of it. There's a Reagan is a very strange uh, person. I think. I think that in his heart, he still believes what he's always believed about the Russians. What he said mm -hmm. early on that they're liars and cheaters, and mm -hmm. it makes no sense to sit down and sign paper mm -hmm. with them. But you see, he's now in this new environment where he's conforming to, quote, the reality as it is described to him yes. by his mm -hmm. age. So uh, when the crunch comes, Ronald Reagan may uh, yell and scream and chew the carpet, but he goes over and he takes out his pen and he signs off and approves the other guy's option. He does it every single time. He may swallow hard. He may have sleepless nights even. Uh, he, But he does it. He basically conforms to their reality. The media is playing the role to the American people of the shrew, the nagging woman mm -hmm. who works her husband over day and night, calls him up at the office and everything else until he finally says, okay, we'll do it. We'll buy a 17,000-room uh, house and... Uh, I'll go into debt. Well, but see, this is going to do all kinds of crazy things because the media is is forcing us into crazy and bizarre decisions. Look, we all feel sympathy for the person nagged, whether it be a husband or a wife, Otto. Whichever sex the shrew is of. Or earthquake Try desperately to bail him out of this. Shrews come in two sets. That's how they multiply. Well, in this day and age, there may be some who aren't even sure what they are, but... This, of course, uh, and I'm sure we all agree, uh, is a very dangerous thing when you're president of the United States to say, oh, give them the arms talks or, you know, don't build the missile system because the, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a unique job that Mr. Reagan holds with the uh, most serious of consequences for our country and indeed the world when he caves in. And that's what it is. He hasn't changed his view, but it's like, let them have it. They want that. We'll go you know, have these stupid talks, as if he can uh, make them consequence-free when he can't. He can't, no, because every... frequently a gesture becomes the policy. Of course, it is part of the policy. Exactly. And therefore, your topic, and it is your topic, of earthquake reform is practical, because here in California, millions, tens, of, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent to make buildings earthquake-proof, mm -hmm. which, of course, is a contradiction in terms. Mm -hmm. uh, if the ground opens up, what is on top falls down. Mm -hmm. 
even but, out here. Huh? But the argument is that, the argument is that it that's not so. I remember talking to the Badger Engineering Company when I was on the Raytheon book, and they did all the planning for a nuclear plant in Maryland, enormously expensive project. The man took me into a room that was about 25 feet long and about maybe 15 feet wide, and all the shelves, all the way up to the ceiling, were lined with books representing the plans and the reports and the hearings and so forth of this particular plant. And at the final hearing, after a number of years had gone by, one of the environmentalists jumped up and said, suppose a plane falls on the roof, Mm. then what? And they said, well, it isn't in the plane pattern. Well, that's beside the point. Suppose a plane wanders out of the Mm. plane pattern and something happens to it when it's over the plant and it falls on the roof. Have you strengthened the roof against that possibility? And they said, no, we haven't. And back to the drawing board, boys. Infallibility. So uh, earthquake reform is not a joke. It's a, it's a living reality. The pragmatists have brought it to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know that I noticed that there was a, a, some county regulations that were passed here just recently in Southern California. I think it is where now if you build a new home that you have to dig a trench. What is it? Six foot wide and six foot deep all the way around the proposed foundation, <laughs> and then over over a set period of time you have to repack the earth back into the hole. And this somehow or another forms a buffer to the shock of the earthquake uh, hitting the foundation of the house. I don't know what, but every but the new houses have to be done that way now in, in some of those areas down there. You stop and think about the incredible lengths that people will go to in order to perpetuate this this ideology of of infallibility. You know, uh, it's just. That, that, that adds $8,500 to the cost of a typical home. Uh, true, true, but... Would you uh, say that this is an attempt to uh, say that we can protect ourselves against acts of God? I think up to a point it is legitimate because earthquakes of an intensity which in other countries kill tens of thousands may kill only a dozen in California. On the other hand, they are pushing it to unreasonable degrees. At the same time, they're not uh, taking care of an obvious thing. Filled ground uh, is the most dangerous in an earthquake, and they haven't abolished construction on filled ground. I think uh, a very important area to explore now, Otto, You uh, just returned yesterday from an important monetary conference, an international one, at Arden House in New York State. How did these men see the future for this country and for the world economically? Well, the general consensus there was that we are on a toboggan from which we cannot get off because the uh, government of the United States has abandoned all constitutional restraints. It, uh, beginning with Mr. Nixon, 
and repeated again in 1972. Uh, one of the... This is, all, of course, the last stages. When Nixon closed the gold window, the United States repudiated its obligations internationally. Uh, it did what the uh, press now fears Mexico or Argentina might do. It repudiated its debts because... We lost 12 and a half tons of gold from Europeans and others who were presenting their dollars for, for the gold. So we closed the gold window. There was no, our dollars no longer became redeemable in gold. And then later on, we stopped printing silver certificates. So we have what's called irredeemable money, uh, money which says, I owe you nothing. Now, Historically, this has collapsed every time it's been tried. And the consensus at Arden House, all the way from John Exter, who was a very high official with the Fed, and including international bankers and every other person that was there, is that we are going to pay... Uh, a heavy price, uh, we are being destroyed by the fact that we have no money. And the, gov the government uh, who's done this to us is a dishonest government. Uh, the people are being deceived. And uh, we will go through the same fires that Germany went through, that Hungary went through, that Israel is now going through, and Bolivia, and Bolivia, and other places. And uh, there is no sign that we're going to avert it because the courts refuse to acknowledge the existence of the crisis. Now, the continental Illinois uh, was brought up. As we all know, they were billions of dollars uh, in the hole. Uh, there was a run started on the bank. The FDIC, which insures deposits up to 100000 exceeded its charter and exceeded its legal rights by guaranteeing everything that the bank owed, whether it owed it internationally, whether it owed it to corporations, or whether it owed it to individuals. And poured 18 to 22, I think even more, billions of dollars into the bank, and what happened was an unofficial nationalization of the Continental Illinois Bank, uh, undertaken by a government agency that had no legal right to undertake it, and the action was, of course, praised by all and sundry. So we have a government now which is living outside the law in a time of peace. What can we expect it to do in a time of great crisis? Incidentally, Otto, just a minor correction. I think you unintentionally reversed the order of repudiation. The silver certificates were first repudiated by Johnson, and then uh, our gold payments by Nixon. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, some people will say, well, all our gold would have flowed out. But we had artificially priced our gold so low that it was a sensational bargain. If we had allowed gold 
to uh, hit a natural market price at that time, we would not have had the problem. I think that's true. We, we uh, price-controlled gold. I take it there was nothing said at this conference that indicated uh, that anyone there thought President Reagan was doing anything about this. Reagan's, it was an interesting, interesting point. President Reagan's name and all the talks did not arise. Mm. The uh, John Volker's, uh, Paul Volker's name was brought up and quickly dropped as unimportant. The Fed, of course, is a cookie monster to all uh, sensible economists because we abandoned the capitalist system when the Fed was created and we introduced the income tax. Uh, to put a coalition of private bankers in charge of the currency of the country was an act, I guess you could say, of piracy. suicide. Mm. Piracy, I would say. You mm -hmm. spoiled my breakfast with mention of the income tax, Otto. <laughs> uh, I, why do you suppose... What, what, what alternatives did they offer? Well, of course, if we were to pull up, if we were to go back to a gold standard, and if we were to take uh, the government's hands off the marketplace, uh, we could still save ourselves. But that would require, before a man can reform, he has to face up to the fact that he has not done right. And... To find people who will admit, I, I, for instance, just, I, I, I remember the pre-conversion period, and I remember, of course, how can one forget his conversion? And I remember uh, the shame that swept over me when I realized how I had been living for so long. A very good point, Otto. Confession of sins has to precede conversion, and uh, is a part of the reorientation of one's whole life into a life of faith. And uh, those religious groups which soft-pedal that produce false conversions. And you've applied it to the economic sphere. And I think we need to recognize that what is true in the realm of faith is true in every realm, because every realm is ultimately a realm of faith. So, in the world of uh, economics, there has to be a confession of sin. And we're living in sin, economically. Yes. In a world of, of relativism, uh, right and wrong being relative to the individuals, uh, everything becomes a matter of opinion. There's no real strong conviction. Well, I'd like to know... Uh, what was the feeling at the conference? Then I'd like to know what anybody else here thinks about was the feeling, is the feeling that uh, there has to be a tremendous crash before everyone sees the sin and then repents, or uh, that well, short feel of that that can... they feel that the crash is inevitable. How will it manifest itself? Well, it's manifesting itself all the time. Uh, okay. The. Uh, Government has to continue to elaborate in order to con in order to maintain the deception. So it's unlikely there'd just be one 
gigantic uh, catastrophe, and it's just happening. It's an ongoing it's thing. It's an with ongoing thing which continues to go. Okay. Anatole Faketa is a economics professor. It's a Hungarian name, and he was eight years old in Hungary when they had their great post World War II inflation, and he he, he brought up that uh, dress shop in his neighborhood. It's shoes and dresses. Uh, the proprietors had an enormous inventory, but they refused to sell shoes or dresses to any of the women for money because the money was of no value. They would only sell for barter for some objects of, va of equivalent value, so something like the comparable worth theory. Mm -hmm. But uh, the awesome thing about the discussion, although it was mainly centered around the American situation, was that this is true of the entire West. Uh, every Western nation is operating without money, and uh, therefore the entire West is involved in this toboggan. Oof. Grim. Yes, uh, before we go too much further, because immediately after this meeting, we've got to rush John to the airport where his private pilot, Debbie, is Wait a waiting. minute, my wife <laughs> may be hearing this tape explain that. <laughs> it may not be her, no, it's, it's a rotation thing, it's yes. one out of three. At any rate, to fly you to San Francisco to speak on communism. Now, Chuck... I'm against it, by the way. <laughs> I just want to clear that up. Uh, Chuck Wagner, our silent partner, who's uh, in charge of this uh, taping, missed our breakfast yesterday morning and did not hear of your encounter by telephone with John Wayne. Uh-oh. Let me add for our listeners... Uh, <laughs> it's just the cue for the John Wayne story. <laughs> yes. Uh, John uh, has been uh, with a great many of the greats and near-greats and pseudo-greats of our time, <laughs> interviewing them privately or spending a great deal of time alone with them. But this was something different. A pseudo-great is a PG. <laughs> Which category is this crew in? <laughs> All right, the John Wayne story. <clears throat> I think it was 1975. I worked for the American Conservative Union. I was the editor of its monthly publication called Battle Line. And I also wrote a uh, syndicated column at the time. And this was... I think, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure it was 75. This was at the height of the uh, debate about the Panama Canal, whether it should be uh, not given away, because the proposal was to pay them to take it, which was kind of strange, but, uh, or, or whether we should... Good uh, Washington politics. That's right. We should pay them billions of dollars to take uh, our canal, which we did. Uh, and... Uh, one of the things I got in the mail one day was a five-page single-space letter from John Wayne, which I thought before I opened it was good news. It was this would be additional arguments uh, against the the giveaway or the sellaway of this uh, of our canal. 
And, of course, I was astonished to see that this was a five-page uh, single-space letter advocating uh, that we give them uh, the canal, that we not keep the Panama Canal. So I wrote an open letter column to John Wayne, uh, which was uh, almost a uh, caricature of of his own style. It was a uh, uh, Dear Duke. Uh, it was written in a very uh, confrontational, macho-type style, and it just made... I picked apart some of his arguments and just told him, quite frankly, that I, I didn't know where he'd gotten all this information. He clearly didn't sit down at the typewriter and type it out, but he'd been had. And it was sad to see a great patriot had. And uh, Anyway, I forgot about the column. I wrote three a week. You know, you just put them in the mail and they go away, and presumably they appear in print somewhere. And one day I was sitting in the office, and the secretary came in and said, John Wayne is on the telephone. And I said, uh, sure, I'll, you know, be right with him. Because I have a lot of friends that call up and imitate people. So I got on the uh, phone and said, okay, Duke, make it snappy. I'm a very busy man. <laughs> yeah. And then I heard a voice that said, Mr. Lofton. <laughs> and all of a sudden it hit me this was John Wayne well he uh, you know for about two or three minutes it was a uh, it was almost a knockout I mean I could not get any punches off my legs were not under me I mean it was almost over John Wayne I mean it literally took the breath away and you thought maybe he was downstairs calling well, I, that, that was uh, <laughs> that was my first concern. I wanted to say, you know, is, are you on like a house phone? Are you like in town, uh, uh, Mr. Wayne, Mr. Duke? Or, but no, he was on the coast, so he was uh, pretty far away, although still a, a menacing presence. So after three or four minutes of, uh, I don't even remember what he said much of in the first three or four minutes, because I was just trying to realize it was, in fact, John Wayne, and of course, all the secretaries are congregated in the doorway, peering into the office to see, I don't know, if a big fist comes out of the mouthpiece of the phone, to, or what. Uh, but then, uh, then I began to get my legs a little bit, and this was basically becoming just a, a, another of many arguments I have every day with a variety of screwballs advocating idiotic <laughs> positions. I mean, this does happen to be a, 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 in a different category. And then we got on the issues, and uh, I more or less held my own, and uh, we talked for maybe 10 or 12 or 15 minutes. And uh, I, I remember vividly at the end... Uh, uh, somewhat disarming him, I, I think, by the way he, re he, re he responded, by saying that uh, after there had been quite a bit of yelling, by the way. There was <laughs> loud yelling and cursing, and uh, he, he talked just like you'd think John Wayne would talk. And that, But at the end, I said it, it was just, uh, really an honor to have been uh, chewed out by you, and that I hope, you know, if you ever come to town, we can get together or something. And I hung up the phone, and I was telling uh, Rush uh, and some others last night that it was literally almost uh, months that uh, every time there was a knock on my door <laughs> at, at home or a noise, I, I just envisioned, uh, you know, this door being kicked down and uh, this guy with that hat and that neckerchief and these two spinning rifles are coming down my street in Laurel with every all the neighbors running to the window to look out as the Duke came down my street, you know, or the wife saying, 
Honey, John Wayne's at the door. He wants to see you. <laughs> now, the tragedy is that uh, when I tangle with a lot of folks, because a lot of the folks I tangle with are liars, uh, I record my conversations. Occasionally I tell them, but uh, I don't think I owe liars much, so sometimes I don't. And, of course, you're guessing the punchline. This day, of course, I had no tape recorder with me, so... Uh, you have to take my word that this happened. Well, you see, what you do, John, is you simply leave your tape recorder at home, and then all the famous people will call you. <laughs> well, it worked that time. John Wayne. But he was tough, and he was hot, man. He was really smoking. He never denied that uh, well, he didn't he, write it. No, I just told him flat out, look, I mean, uh, you didn't write that letter. I don't know who wrote it. The State Department, it was a robo-type letter, and I later learned that many other people, uh, I think most of them conservatives, had received this identical letter. But someone had, uh, and someone who was smart, had very cleverly uh, used him, and I think very effectively, because yeah. I read later that he also called, uh, you know, senators. Because uh, let's face it, man, when you... When you got a conservative campaign going and the other side rolls out John Wayne against you, this is not exactly the secret weapon you want to see unlimbered in your presence. It's well, tough. What, was, what was Wayne's interest in? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember so much the substance of the letter. I, I, I remember uh, at the time there were rumors. Well, I, I really don't want to speculate on what they were, because I don't know if it was true. There were stories that he had their owned. Big, uh, their big argument was that we would gain friends That's right. That was in basically Hispanic it. America. And, of course, the psychology of that is absolutely perverse, because the one thing that is not uh, admired in Latin America are men who give way. Mm-hmm. One of the things our press uh, is very weak on, uh, particularly when it's uh, to their disadvantage, is following up on stories. Uh, now, take that was what Otto just said was almost the entire rationale for uh, giving away or selling away the Panama Canal is that, you know, we really will avoid a lot of trouble in that area. And uh, in fact, uh, some people who now hate us will begin to love us and of course what is it a decade now or roughly a decade since it's been given away and i i don't see uh where anyone uh in in latin or central america is is a friendlier to us or if anyone has said he is friendlier that he has cited the reason being uh that we in other words nicaragua didn't say to the soviets oh no we don't want those tanks because you see they gave us the panama canal I mean, it's ridiculous. I can't imagine, of course, speaking of the canal, uh, those tanks to Nicaragua, of course, are now going through the Panama Canal on Soviet ships, which, because we don't control it, we cannot demand that they be inspected. So uh, that rationale just lies in rubble, that we would buy friends and by that, giving away the canal. The, was it the was key. the central thrust of the whole yeah. argument. Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll buy friends and avoid a lot of uh, meddling in this hemisphere. Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll remove a lot of the... the uh, rationale that the Soviets could uh, whip up, uh, you know, arguments against the United States because mm -hmm. you kept the canal. So just mm -hmm. uh, do the easy thing, the right thing, and the thing that will bring peace, given the canal. Mm -hmm. I remember the turning point in our relationships with Hispanic America. It was when uh, 
Mr. Kennedy decided to send Perez Jimenez, the former dictator of Venezuela, back to Caracas. Now, Eisenhower had given Perez Jimenez sanctuary, refuge, and Perez had a big home in Miami. And periodically, the Venezuelans asked for his return because they said he stole money and things like that. It never dawned on them that the request would be taken seriously, but Kennedy was advised that this was a good way to become friendly with a friendly nation. So he announced that Perez Jimenez would be returned. The Venezuelans were horrified, and all Latin America was horrified. They said the Americans have no honor because they had never heard of an exile being sent back to the country from which he was exiled. But, of course, they had to take Perez Jimenez. So they gave him two rooms at the, uh, uh, as, uh, in an expensive hotel and said it was house arrest. And he had his entourage up there. And they went through some kind of a farce for several months of a trial. And they found him guilty of some misdemeanor or another. And then they re-exiled him, this time to Madrid. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't going to put a former president of their country in prison. Only an American liberal would want a thing like that. Well, see, it's it's part of the, it's it's really one of the one of the fundamental crimes that the, the the American media and American politicians and what have you have made uh, when they refuse, absolutely refuse, to pay any real attention to the real nature of of the people to the north and the south and the east and the west of us. Of other cultures. You know, yes. Of other cultures. They don't understand. They're always talking about how important it is to preserve black culture in America or uh, Spanish culture in America or some other minority culture in America, but they are almost completely and totally ignorant of every other culture in the world. And even when they're aware of maybe one or two of the premises of these other cultures, they refuse to acknowledge them or take them into account because that doesn't fit the liberal ideal of what peace and harmony between men should be. It's like the macho thing that, that we talked about. You know, now the liberal, uh, particularly the feminist, would heavily deny the validity of that premise, you see. And so there would be a condition placed upon any kind of, of dealings with those people over there which would fail to recognize that. And as a result, we would blunder, you know, because of this ideal that we want to impose on someone else. I think it would be very important, uh, Otto, if you told everyone about, let's say, Venezuela. You have a great deal of experience there. What constitutes a man? The jaguar hunting. Oh, the well, whole bit. Yeah, so a... that the idea of manhood there, as it is contrasted with ours, and our failure to understand how they view what we do, uh, I think that would be important to get onto the record. Well, the uh, it was it's really not much different than the idea of manhood and womanhood in the United States, let's say, a century ago. Uh, but manhood in in Venezuela, Venezuela, by the way, for many a long time in Latin America was called by other countries down there, the barracks, because it's not a soft country. 
but you run you run into or used to run into uh, the well-to-do Venezuelan, a little pencil mustache. He had a handkerchief in his sleeve. He was very well dressed, and he was soft-spoken. If he had a jaguar skin on the office wall, however, a certain amount of caution is advocated uh, in dealing with him because the way they hunt jaguar in Venezuela is that they take a plane into the interior and they have Indian beaters who beat the jaguar to you. You have to kill the jaguar with a spear, not a gun. And the spear has to be in your own hand. Why are you looking at me? Well, I'm not looking at you. <laughs> I want a jaguar tied uh, so down then, when I then, stir then him you're, uh, then, then you're entitled to put the jaguar skin on the wall. Uh, homosexuality uh, is, enough, is a sufficient reason to shoot a man. And uh, at least when I was last there, everybody had a gun. A cousin of mine said, uh, let's go somewhere. And I said, fine. He said, do you have a gun? I said, no. He said, here. And he threw one at me. I said, look. Uh, the one thing about carrying a gun down there is that it, it uh, validates a system of courtesy so that you don't insult other people uh, wildly. <laughs> like and, and you'd be surprised how courteous it makes everything. <laughs> now the women, uh, the women are very powerful, as everywhere. Uh, there's never been any 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 uh, artificial means of reducing female power, as far as I know. Cato the Elder is told the Roman Senate when they were discussing equal rights for women that if to their natural superiority we add equal rights, he said, we are undone and the empire will be destroyed. <laughs> but, In other words, you take back the earlier remark about the shrew. <laughs> okay. Well, it was your assumption that I was talking about female shrews only. Well, that's you true. corrected me on that. We have male shrews, too. But there is one thing, uh, just to conclude this little chalk talk, is that... Uh, it's a very comforting thing in a way to have a clear masculine and a clear feminine profile because then people don't have to worry or wonder about what is right and what is appropriate and what is not. So you would suggest that uh, Boy George not add Venezuela to his tour, right? <laughs> Unless he wants it to be his last stop. One of the things that pleased my father was that when the Follies Berger came through Caracas, Six of the girls refused to leave the city. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> well, that's only that's only one aspect, though, of the differences between the cultures. You know, one of the things that the American media, for example, is constantly harming, harping on the the necessity for uh, government by the people, etc., 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 in Central and South America, which totally fails to recognize the fact that the people in Southern and Central America have never learned to be individual self-governing people as the Americans once did, that historically for over a thousand years all government in Venezuela and, and the majority of the other countries down there has not been from the bottom up, it's been from the top down. That's and that's a fundamental difference. That's why they're so susceptible to dictatorships. You go back to the Incan, the Mayan, and the Aztec Indians, you go back to the invasion by the Spanish. You go back to 
all of the history that we know of in terms of Central America, and they have always been ruled from the top down by well, strong dictators, and not from the bottom. Not there wasn't any bottom up. It was top down government. Well, their idea is that a country progresses by being united. They don't understand the idea of a loyal opposition. To them, an opposition is an opposition against the goals of the country. And it's is very deeply implanted in their attitudes so that uh, they would read in the newspaper where an American senator would say something and they immediately assumed that was an official policy of the government. Mm -hmm. Our loudmouths up here have done more to derange our relationships with other nations than any other single factor. And then, of course, there is the abandonment of the educational institution of teaching what is crucial to know, not the similarities between people, but the differences. The if you don't know the differences, you don't know how to conduct yourself with somebody else. That is taken for granted in America is forbidden everywhere else. They keep talking about the fact that the Russians are people just like us. Well, they're people, but they're not just like us. John, how about organizing a jaguar hunt in Venezuela for Senators Kennedy, Baker, and a few others in Washington <laughs> and forget to give them the sticks? Do <laughs> you remember when Robert Kennedy climbed a mountain by being dropped off onto the peak by a helicopter? In, was that in... Oh, I'd forgotten that, no. They wondered how he'd gotten up there so fast. <laughs> no, jaguar hunting does not, unless you meant uh, the car. <laughs> well, Did you ever go jaguar hunting? No, I didn't. I, you obviously But I would have if I'd been asked. because You would have? Oh, certainly. I would rather have died than refused to go. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, all right. It would have been. Uh, it would have raised serious questions oh, indeed. about you had Absolutely. you said no. Yeah. Better to face the jaguar Absolutely. than to the turned down yes. Venezuela. Yes. To walk because the jaguar okay. might miss. <laughs> <laughs> and there are many more Venezuelans than there were jaguars. Absolutely. Okay, I, that's a good answer. <laughs> You know, it, it, it occurs to me that there might be this whole area of discussion in terms of Central American foreign policy and what have you, and South American foreign policy, that might be a very, very fruitful area of investigation for you because of your background, having been born or having lived in, you know, having your family from Venezuela and etc. It might be a very interesting... An Argentinian, too. Argentina. It might be... Uh, it might be a very important area for in investigation. Have you so been far. back lately? or No, I haven't. I have uh, relatives still there. You ever thought about going back? No, I, I was not fond of Latin America. My father was, and my grandfather. Uh, and I'm talking about a trip, just a fact-finding thing, to come back and do a report or a tape. I was in Nicaragua just before the uh, blow-off there. Oh, is that right? Oh, yes. I was the last fellow to interview... Pedro Joaquin Chamorro, who was editor of the mm -hmm. Prensa. And he was an unpleasant fellow. Uh, he, uh, he was very wealthy. He came from the same set as Somoza. They grew up together as boys. And uh, his real problem was that he wanted to be president of Nicaragua. He thought Somoza and his family had served their time. 
So he was picked up by Castro, and he was willing to accept help from anybody. Being a wealthy liberal, he saw no danger. Uh, when I got back to San Diego, as it happens then, uh, and had finished the article, I got a call from Washington saying Pedro Chamorro was uh, shot dead this morning on his way to work. And I said, who did it? And he said, three Cubans, his friends. Mm-hmm. And that was the signal for the revolution. Well, uh, Mr. Carter, they blamed, of course, Chamorro's death on uh, Somoza, just like they br- blamed uh, Quino in the Philippines on Marcos and so forth, as though anybody would be dumb enough to kill his most conspicuous enemy and to mm-hmm. do it in public. Well, at any rate, uh, Mr. Carter embargoed Nicaragua, and Israel broke it, broke the embargo for a while because Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua was one of the few countries to give unrestricted refuge to the victims of Jewish victims of Hitler. And there were 50 very wealthy Jewish families in Nicaragua at the time. Uh, Carter got very severe with Israel over that, so Israel stopped and the Somoza's National Guard ran out of bullets. That's how the Sandinistas won. And incidentally, one of the things that the Sandinistas did was to confiscate all the property of those 50 Jewish families and throw them out of the country. Mm. Our time is just about uh, gone. John, anything you'd like to say by way of conclusion before we... Uh, and this session? Well, not really. <laughs> How's that? Uh, it's nice to be out here again. I appreciate you uh, having me on the program. Well, we trust your talk this afternoon will go over well and that you'll have a safe flight back to Washington, D.C.